Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. I think I had the best models for how to be a good person. Like, I think everything about who I am as a human being and what I know about how you care about people, how you treat people, how you're in relationship with people, how you labor, all of that I learned from people I grew up with so much in Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachia. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, it's Will. And Neil, what up? How's it going? Man, pretty good. All is well. Um, keep my head above water down here, you know? Man, you say that a lot. It's hectic, bro. That's life. It's not just Appalachia. That's life. Life is, life is hectic. I heard a good good uh, talk over the weekend about not letting your emotions control your, your day or control your attitude, I guess. So I'm trying to uh, not let my emotions control me. <laughs> Super Bowl week. You think Joe Cool gets it done? I'm rooting for him. I know. I, know I am. Are. I am. I, I have no no ties to Los Angeles Rams. Who cares about them? Nobody wants them to win. How close were you to going? Tell the truth. I was really close until I saw the price of tickets. I, I'm sure Athens is going to. They might just blow the city up if he wins it. Is the town like shutting down? Nah, I mean, probably. Man. Can you imagine? Every restaurant has something named after him. That's all they talk about. It's insane. They, I'm sure they will. They'll probably have a watch party on the square if they have an arena there you know they're going to the arena and having a watch party well, they, they, have a univer- have- they have a university there of course they have an arena that's where ohio university oh is it okay well yeah they're probably shutting shutting down and going to ohio university and watching it i'll be watching it from the comfort of my home hopefully i don't have any plans you know it's kind of hard with a 17 month old to go many places that time of night I feel you. I, I, that's that's my consistent plan every year, unless you know, unless there's a Super Bowl party. But uh, this year, I'm I'm thinking about little chicken dip <laughs> in the Super Bowl. Oh, uh, you know I'm gonna have some of that. Uh, you know I'm gonna have some good appetizers. Of course, oh, yeah, gotta have that. Oh yeah. oh yeah. You know I'm a Tom Brady fan. So every year I watch the Super Bowl at home because that's the only place that you can really focus on the game. Because right. Tom's usually playing. Because right? he's playing every year. So <laughs> every year I watch the Super Bowl at home so that I can focus. When you go to Super Bowl parties, man, it's just all about the party. Yeah, you don't even watch you don't even watch the game. No. So that's why I like to be in a in a comfortable place where I can really enjoy the game. The I can see that. And uh, I'm literally of his twenty two year career. And let's not count this year. So of his 21, because he actually probably should have gone this year too. But of his 21 years, he went to 10 Super Bowls. That yeah. means every other year he was in the Super Bowl. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It'll never happen again. No. I mean, I think about the guys that are playing right now that could go on a run like that. If you sit here and say that Joe Burrow is going to play in 10 Super Bowls over the next 20 years, you're lying to yourself, man. That's what they said about Dan Marino. I know. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen again. Never. Write it down. I said it right here on Appalachian Meets World. Ain't nobody playing in 10 Super Bowls again. Ever. You know, once we release this, your word is bond, right? It, you can't take it back. Hey, put it in blood. Whatever you got to do. It ain't <laughs> we'll celebrate next week on the show if he, if he wins. Appal- Appalachian boy. Yeah, I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to it. See what happens. So it'll I think it'll be a good game. I really do, man. I mean, but you got Money McPherson out there. Old Golden Leg. <laughs> I got a I got a buddy here in town that's a huge Bengals fan and he he said at the beginning of the year 
the best draft pick in the history of the Cincinnati Bengals. Joe Burrow? No. McPherson. <laughs> he's been right this year. I love it when he told Joe Burrow, before he even kicked it, looks like we're going to the AFC Championship. <laughs> <laughs> oh, money. Gotta love it. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of that, I have an at biz this week. So it's got a little bit to do with Joe Burrow, that is. It also has a little bit to do with Black History Month, since we're still celebrating in February. So there's a little business in Athens, Ohio. It's called Butcher Bites. Butcher Bites is a minority-owned business in Athens, Ohio. So it's a ready-to-eat meal prep business. You order your foods online. You go pick up your boxes. When you get home, you can either throw them in the fridge, throw them in the microwave. Balanced macronutrient from clean whole food sources. It's a pretty cool little business started by two nutritionists, two chiropractors that are from Athens. Like I said, it's local. They only deliver. You you can only pick it up, order it in Athens, Ohio. Appalachia, Ohio, but you know, this is something that could start everywhere, but it's, it's pretty cool what they got going on. Fresh foods, locally sourced, whole foods and clean, good for you. Anytime you need a meal, make an order, go in the microwave. It's ready. Pretty cool. You can check them out at butchersbots.com if you want more information. Pretty neat little business there in uh, Athens, Ohio. It might not be there after this Sunday, but <laughs> they may burn it down if Joe burn it down. <laughs> get it, get there while you can. <laughs> one other thing I want to talk about before we get into this episode, just just quickly, you know, one of the problems that a lot of people referred, a lot of our guests refer to, or some of the problem that challenges that the region had that we refer to on here as well is you know population loss throughout. Appalachia. Every small town, even large cities throughout Appalachia have seen it over decades. Large population losses. Yeah. Every small town feels it. You know, why is that, Will? <laughs> Tell us. Well, it's usually has to do with employment or people's, you know, going elsewhere seeking other opportunities. But this has been happening for, for a large number of years, especially in the healthcare industry. A lot of towns have recruited foreign-born doctors or foreign-born healthcare workers to come work in their communities. You know, a lot of counties in Appalachia, especially in eastern Kentucky, where we're from, over 50% of the doctors, uh, of the physicians in that county are foreign-born immigrants. You know, a lot of people always talk about Appalachia, Appalachia towns, not being welcoming, welcoming to outsiders, but I don't think that's the case. People coming in from other areas, whether it be to work in white collar jobs or like, like I said, to recruit physicians or healthcare workers, that's an opportunity for Appalachian towns to repopulate and, and build community. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a great segue into uh, our guest tonight. Nima Avashia is our guest and we wanted to have her on because she wrote a book and we'll get into that. But her parents were Indian immigrants from India who moved to Huntington, West Virginia, because her dad was a, a physician, but he went to work in the chemical industry as, as a local doctor for the, for the chemical industry there in Huntington, West Virginia. And a lot of her writings are based on, on that, but also forming her own identity in Appalachia, which is something we hope to talk about with her I think it's a cool story and it just highlights the possibilities of immigration. You know, it doesn't mean that Appalachian culture has to get lost. It just means that it could enrich the Appalachian culture, diversify the culture, make it a more vibrant Appalachia. Yes, sir. I'm looking forward to it. You want to get it on here? Absolutely. Let's do it. Tonight's episode, we have with us Nima Avashia. She was born and raised in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, which is just outside of Nitro, West Virginia. For those of you that don't know, it's in southwestern West Virginia. She's a now is a Boston-based middle school teacher where she teaches civics 
in the Boston public school system. And she's a writer and has a multitude of essays that talk about everything from place to identity, to challenges and issues in the education system. And she's coming out with a new book in March called Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Uh, Nima, we, we thank you for being on the show. We, we appreciate you being here and thanks for the time. Thanks for having me. I'm psyched to be here. If you've listened to any of our episodes, you know our first question. As most Appalachians are big on tradition, our family's big on tradition as well. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. We usually have this huge spread of appetizers, usually bigger than the meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just a holiday dish? I do, but it's kind of a funny one uh, in the sense that, you know, growing up, we celebrated the holidays that folks were celebrating, but we often celebrated them with Indian food. So like when I think about the holidays, I think about American holidays, but I think about Indian dinners. (laughs) Uh, So my favorite appetizer is actually one called Pani Puri, which is these little small fried hollow puffs that you break a hole in them and you fill them with potatoes and chickpeas and tamarind sauce. And then you dip them in this like mint infused water and then you shoot them, you eat them like in one bite. So like they're this explosion in your mouth of like crispy and tart and salty and minty and they're delicious um, and what are they called again they're called pani puri which is like water and puff pani is water puri is puff but yeah that's that's I what i think about um, that's our very traditional thanksgiving appetizer in my cool, house very cool up. um now that we have that question out of the way, I wanted to just get into your background. I did mention that you were born and raised in West Virginia, but I did not mention that your parents were immigrants. They moved to West Virginia for work. And can you just get into the background of why your parents moved here and where you grew up and how you grew up? Yeah, for sure. So my dad came to the U.S. He actually moved to New York City in the late 60s to do his residency. He'd gone to medical school in India and then he came to the United States to do residency. And he did his residency in Queens, but he studied occupational medicine, which means like he kind of knew from the outset that he was interested in working in an industrial context. And so he was living in New York and he was looking through the classifieds and there was an advertisement from Union Carbide Corporation, which had their headquarters in Manhattan. Union Carbide was has a huge building. I mean, it's, it's still called the Union Carbide building now, even though it's not theirs, but it's a huge building in downtown Manhattan. And they listed that they were looking for a physician and they're actually looking for physicians for two plants. One in Institute, West Virginia, and one in a place called Sea Drift, Texas. And my dad went down to visit, and I think my parents really were captivated by the natural beauty of West Virginia. I think it was just like nothing they'd ever seen before. And they ended up deciding to move there. They lived in New York for just a very short time, like two, two and a half years. And then they moved to West Virginia and they lived there for actually longer than they lived in India. My parents uh, lived in West Virginia from like 1972 to 2003. So about 30, 31 years that they lived there and really found ways to sort of make West Virginia home. Um, And so my dad worked at, at Union Carbide the whole time that Union Carbide existed. And then if you know anything about the history of the Chemical Valley, you know that those chemical plants just started to be in this cycle of like selling and buy-offs and renamings. Um, And he kind of was able to persist through some of those, but eventually it reached a point where um, they had shut down operations to like such a degree that there were not very many jobs left at all. And so in 2003, he kind of ended up in a situation where it was like, well, if you want to keep working for what was Bayer at that point, you're going to have to move because we don't have work for you here anymore. Otherwise, I think they'd still be there. I think that he was in his 50s. So it wasn't like retirement wasn't really an option at that point. I think that the only reason they left was because of work. And had they had the ability to stay, I think they would have. Because I think, you know, they've lived in Kansas City for until he retired, they moved to Kansas City where Bayer's headquarters were. And then they now live in Austin, Texas, um, which is where my sister lives. But West Virginia for them is still home. I think in a lot of ways, West Virginia is more home for them than India. Is it my understanding that when they moved there, the carbide plant was there. So there was, I won't say a large population, but there was a a population of Indian immigrants. They kind of had that, I won't call it family, but they had that likeness to uh, collaborate with while they were, while they lived in West Virginia. 
Yeah, they did. I mean, they were some of the first. Um, they weren't the very first. I think the very, very first family to move there came like very shortly after 1965. But they were among the first. And then, you know, is, this is very typical for immigrants in the United States and really all over the world is like once there's a small population of folks there, they'll be like, come like we're here. We've got you. We can support you. And so they did build like a community of, I would say, you know, 100, 100 Indian families most of whom were employed either in the chemical industry or in the medical field because West Virginia was recruiting doctors to come and work in the hospitals. Um, and yeah. a lot of American born doctors wouldn't come to work in West Virginia. Um, you know, if they had their pick, they were going to wherever they wanted to go, which wasn't West Virginia necessarily. <laughs> so there is this interesting community of medical folks, Indian folks and Filipino folks, actually both who are physicians who came, came to West Virginia in the seventies to work in the medical field. I, I just find that incredibly interesting because, you know, being from West Virginia, as you are, you, you know how people think of Appalachia that we're this monolith that we're all white Christian, but, but that's not the case. And we've had yeah. several people on this show. We've had Dr. William Turner. Who mm -hmm. is just, amazing. We have Michael Crowley who yeah. has any other place. His mom is Korean, a Korean immigrant. His dad is white American, but he talks a lot about his identity. That's one thing you write about a lot as well in your essays. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you, as your parents were immigrants from India, I imagine, you know, they were older, they had already formed their identity in India. And here you are born in West Virginia in Appalachia, really the heart of central Appalachia, trying to form your own identity. Was it hard for you as your parents had this kind of Indian identity in Appalachia while you were trying to form your own? Yeah, I think it was really tough. I think that, you know, it's interesting that, that you bring up Michael Crawley. And when I think back, like I had classmates, I had a classmate whose grandma was Japanese American. I had another classmate whose grandma was Syrian American. Like there have always been immigrants to Appalachia, right? Like it's this weird thing that there's this dominant narrative that doesn't reflect reality because that reality was in play even when I was a kid in the 80s. The kids in my class, like there was a range of folks. Was it as wide as it would have been in Manhattan? No, <laughs> but, but it, it was not the monolith that I think uh, people want it to be or want to frame it as. That said, like I was often the only Indian kid in my classes and there weren't a lot of students of color, black students, brown students, like there were a handful of us. So I think figuring out what that meant, what that meant about like who I was, how was I supposed to honor the sort of cultural traditions of my parents and also like successfully navigate the culture and expectations of the place where we lived was really hard. I didn't have models for how to do that. My, I have an older sister. She's seven years older than I am. I think in some ways she was like my model, but she also left school. She left home when I was 11 because she went to college. So really at that point, when you're like really getting into the throes of like, who am I in the world? Like she was already gone. Yeah. And so I think it was very, very hard to figure out how to balance the familial and cultural expectations of home with the sort of outside world. And I think it just was this constant balancing act of trying to figure out like, okay, in this moment, who am I going to be? And in this next moment, what am I going to do? And it was, you know, it wasn't linear and it wasn't consistent. Like, I think I just was constantly sort of trying and testing to be like, well, what am I going to do now? What choice am I going to make in this situation? How am I going to balance all these different messages that I'm getting from the world around me about who I'm supposed to be or who I'm not supposed to be? but doing it all really in the absence of models. When you're the kid of immigrants, you're kind of just always going first. You just kind of go first your whole life. Like that's something I've realized. And that actually is like one of the things that I think has been so powerful about writing the book is that, you know, all these other people who went first start coming out of the woodwork. And it's like, you were all doing it. Like everyone was doing it, but we were all doing it simultaneously. So we didn't we didn't see each other. Like we were also in our own heads. We didn't realize somebody else was doing it too. Appalachia is really, a, as everyone knows, is a marginalized culture in itself. And here you have a book of being queer and Indian, which is a marginalized upon a marginalized upon a marginalized <laughs> culture. Did you have anyone as role models to look to when you were younger or even in writing your books that were like you or that were similar to you? I, I imagine not, but <laughs> I no, just want to ask that yeah. question. 
No, it's a good question. I think I had really great models for how to be a good person. Right. Yeah. I think I had the best models for how to be a good person. Like I think everything about who I am as a human being and what I know about how you care about people, how you treat people, how you're in relationship with people, how you neighbor, all of that I learned from people I grew up with in West Virginia. I had amazing coaches and amazing neighbors and amazing teachers and who, who taught me everything about what it means to be a good person. I think in terms of the specifics of like racial identity or sexuality, no, like there, there weren't. And I think for that reason, I definitely feel like there are parts of my life where I came into understandings about myself later than I think the young people who I teach do. Like they know a lot more about themselves at the age of 13 or 14 than I did because they have models. Right. But I would say like, I'm not sure I'd trade. Like if I had to go back, I feel like what I learned from my basketball coach, Carl Bradford, about what it means to mentor someone, the way that understanding of mentoring has shaped who I am as a teacher and the way I relate to my students, like I wouldn't trade that for anything. You could give me a, an experience of childhood where like I was totally reflected in the world around me. And if it meant that I was going to lose that learning, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it. You, you mentioned Carl Bradford. I, I loved your essay, Be Like Wilt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's excellent. And it's right. It's right on point of, you know, how you take strides towards your Appalachian identity. But in doing so, you also kind of step away from your parents foreign identity. Um, yeah, I found that very interesting in that in that essay. Yeah, I mean, I think my parents didn't know what to make of what I was doing. They were like generous enough to kind of give me space and be like, okay, if this is what you want to do, like, we're not going to stop you. They never stopped me, right? It was just really far away from their life, right? This this sort of like kid who's going down to the basement to watch basketball every Sunday, you know, like right. just me down there with Bob Costas, like, they, like um, it, you know, and I, I couldn't have done those things if it wasn't for someone like Carl Brackford. Like he was inducting me into a sport, but also inducting me into a culture and community that I, I don't think I would have had access to without him. And you need people like that. You need people who are going to bridge that gap. That's a big thing I think about now is like in so many ways, we are so segmented and sort of siloed that you don't have as many people who are like the Carl Bradfords of the world who are like, I can be a bridge. I'm not going to ask you to give up who you are, but I, I can be a bridge and I can help you enter this other space where I think there's stuff that you can learn and stuff you can connect to. We need more bridges. I don't, I don't think we have enough of them anymore. Yeah. And we talk about all the time on the show, we have different, you know, people define Appalachia in different ways, but we kind of u- utilize the ARC definition or the Appalachian Regional Commission. And so we've had people on from Alabama, from mm-hmm. Tennessee, from Kentucky, Ohio, West Virginia, but also New York. And, and everyone's different. Like we said, we're not this monolith, but I think there is this unique similarity among Appalachians. I, I don't know if it's the people like you mentioned or, or what, but anywhere I've lived in a lot of places, it's always just felt different where I've lived than, than Appalachia. I don't know if you have that same feeling. I know you've lived in Boston for almost 20 years now. Do you still have that same sentiment? about Appalachia? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I spent my whole life chasing those feelings and I can't find them anywhere, you know? And it's like, a, it, like sometimes I'm like, am I just being like real nostalgic right now? Like nostalgia <laughs> yeah. is a dangerous drug, right? Like, <laughs> but I lived in the Midwest. I lived in Wisconsin. I lived in Pittsburgh. I've lived in Boston. There is a way that people on Appalachia understand what it means to be human with one another that I really miss. And that I have not been able to find. And I feel like it's how I try to orient towards the world that I live in. But it's pretty exhausting because it's just me most of the time. You know, like I've, I've lived in my neighborhood. I've lived in the same neighborhood for 18 years. I like walk down the street. I always greet people. Fundamentally, you learn this growing up. You don't walk by somebody without greeting them and acknowledging their existence. People here look right through you. Like literally, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I just looked at you and spoke to you and like nothing. Like you can't just acknowledge my humanity as a person. You know, like I can't get that from you. Never mind. My neighbors growing up fed me meals and yeah. planted things in their gardens for my dad that he liked that he couldn't plant. Like that level of care or humanity is just like really absolutely 
absent. And I think it is the thing ultimately that when you leave, it's the thing everybody misses uh, and that they don't find in other places is that sort of like that way of like seeing other people as fully human and like kind of embracing like their fullness and being like, how can I, how can I be part of your humanity and how can you be part of mine? Yeah, I a hundred percent agree, agree, agree with that for sure. We mentioned Michael Crowley earlier. One of the things that he said when he was on here, which I found interesting was that when he was at home and growing up, because of his face, he didn't really fit in. Mm-hmm. But then when he would go to D.C. Or, or when he got older and he would go to, to these other larger cities with his face, he would fit in. But then he would talk and he would have this <laughs> accent and he didn't fit in. So oh. he felt like he really didn't fit in anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, you know, you said you moved away to college, but you still went to Carnegie Mellon, which is still in Appalachia, but you now live in Boston. Did you move for opportunity on a personal level or was it more professional? Or when, when I say moved, I meant I mean, move away from Appalachia. You talk about this sentiment, still looking for it, but what drew you away from the mountains, I guess? You know, I think that I never heard from anyone, a teacher, my parents, I never heard that it was an option to stay. And I think some of that is timing. Like I think, you know, I turned 18 in the like late 90s, the sort of writing was on the wall in some ways in terms of what was happening to Southern West Virginia in terms of industry, in terms of work, the bust was happening. And so my teachers were like, don't become a teacher. This is the worst thing you can do to (laughs) become a teacher. And if you become a teacher, don't come back here. And my parents, I think, looking at what was happening to the economy, were just like, I don't think this is going to, like, I'm not sure what you're going to do if you come back here. Because the adults around me were saying that during that part of my identity formation, like I never even like considered the possibility that I could go back. And when I would go home, the other people who had left also weren't coming back. So like people who didn't leave stayed. There was a huge contingent of people who stayed who I would see in the community working by and large and working class jobs. But the folks who had left, left. The thing that I see happening now where people are returning It's beautiful and it's amazing. And I just, that wasn't a thing that was happening 20 years ago where people were like, no, no, like we can come back and we can find ways to like hold progressive politics and rural living. Like those things can go together. Like we can do all of these things at the same time. We don't have to choose. I think there were people doing that but I didn't know them. I didn't have them as models. They weren't visible in the same way. Like I think technology and social media actually are really powerful that way in terms of showing you like, oh, there are other ways to do this. Like it doesn't have to be this dichotomy of like you stay and if you stay, then you're limited to this subset of jobs or you leave and leaving is what we term as success. And that's the dichotomy I feel like I was raised with. The road to quote success was was leaving. And yeah, I, that's unfortunate. We grew up in the same time period. And that's obviously I'm white American, but that's largely what I heard as well. There are no opportunities here. That's all I heard. There are no now, jobs. There are no jobs. There are no like exactly. literally that's all anyone said. There are no jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that's like different now is it, it's not like there are more jobs per se now that are like existent, but what people are doing is they're creating. Yeah. And we've had several people on, on in regards to the importance of entrepreneurship in right. Appalachia. We've had, uh, I don't know if you know what Brandon Dennison is doing with Cofield Development in West Virginia, but they're doing a lot of cool things in Southwest West Virginia in the Huntington area in regards to workforce and economic development and just creating jobs out of, you know, out of nothing, really cool things in in Eastern Kentucky and in Southwestern West Virginia and all of West Virginia. So I definitely agree that it's not like it was 20 years ago. No. And, and and again, it's not to say it wasn't happening because I think, I think progressive traditions and I think creativity and ingenuity are not like it's not new. None of that is new, right? right? All of that was always there, but it's more the visibility around it. And again, going back to that idea of models, for you to know something is possible, you have to see it. Yeah. I mean, there are some people who are visionary enough to be like, there are no models, but I'm still going to do it. I am not that visionary. Like I, I need a model. I need, I need to see that it's possible. And I think, and now you can, you know, I was at Heinemann a couple of years ago 
and George Ella Lyon was there, poet laureate of Kentucky. And she's doing a concert at a reading and she's playing on a washboard and she's singing old time music, but it's music she's written in which the song is a protest song about the treatment of migrant children at the border. That for me was just like, I still get chills thinking yeah. about it, right? It's like, she doesn't buy the false choice. She's not someone who's like, you leave and you leaving is evolution and staying is stagnation. Like that is not it. She's like, no, all these things can exist at the same time. The washboard and the music tradition can exist. And I can also sing about things that are politically relevant in this moment. And there's nothing like this uh, incongruous about doing that. I wish that I'd had that model when I was 19 years old. Yeah, that's something else that we've talked about a lot on on our show. Growing up in the school system, not being taught uh, our hometown. Like I said, Michael Crowley is from there, but also Silas House is from where we're from. And books like that, just we weren't taught that in school. We had the Battle of Blair Mountain on an episode. We weren't taught those things in school. It was just something that it was just left out. It's like Appalachia, you live here. Let's not learn about it <laughs> type of thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I took a West Virginia studies class in eighth grade. Every eighth grader in West Virginia had to. I don't think I don't know if you still do, but at the time you had to take a West Virginia studies class. And I still didn't learn about the Battle of Blair Mountain. <laughs> How is that possible? Yeah, yeah, I know. There right? was like a test that you could take called the Golden Horseshoe Test that like demonstrated your knowledge, West Virginia. And I still didn't learn that history. Right. And Blair Mountain is a really great example. That history is about a multiracial rising up. That is a narrative about, about Appalachia that like that should define Appalachia. And instead, it's history that gets like Forgotten. shoved like into a corner and like we didn't even learn it. So forget anyone outside of West Virginia. Knowing it. Like, <laughs> right. if I didn't learn it in school as a person who lived there, then I can't expect anyone else to know it. But I, I think I think that does connect to this idea of like what you imagine is possible. Right even what stories you imagine are possible. If I never read an Appalachian writer in school, how do I know that I can be a writer? Exactly. How do I know that my story matters if I never get to see a story of anyone who comes from the place that I come from? Reese DJ Pancake grew up 20 miles away from me and I was 35 before I read his book. <laughs> yeah. Or probably even heard of him. <laughs> yeah. And like, how is that possible? Right. right? Right. And like, I, I find myself being like, wow, am I like really ignorant? Like, did I just like miss all of this? And then I'm like, no, I, I don't think I missed it. I think I wasn't taught it. Yeah. 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 I know. I, my brother and I talk about that all the time, of how important it is for the youth to know what they, what the possibilities are. And that's one of the reasons why we want to have this podcast, not only celebrate diversity throughout Appalachia, but just celebrate opportunity and talk about all the great things that are happening and all the great people that are here. Yeah, I think, I mean, the most important thing that I think I can teach a young person is that their story matters. If I can do that with a young person, I feel like that is the most important thing I can do is to validate their identity and their story. And I think about what did it mean that so many of us grew up without any validation of our stories? Right. And there are amazing teachers in West Virginia now who like, are doing this work and are teaching Appalachian literature and are bringing that into their classrooms in incredible ways. And I feel grateful that they're doing that work, but it also just, it feels like a real miseducation that happened to so many of us that we, we didn't get that opportunity. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, so we had an Appalachian studies professor on er, early on during our podcast, and he, he tells his students, whether you've been in Appalachia a day or you've been, lived here your whole life, that you still should consider yourself Appalachian. You know, you were born and raised there, but you've lived in Boston for, like I said, going on 20 years. But do you recognize as Appalachian? And also, do you think your parents recognize as Appalachian? I think my parents recognize themselves as West Virginian. I don't know that the term Appalachian is a term that they were like as familiar with. I even think just the visibility of that word has changed over time. I would say growing up, I did not feel like I was Appalachian. It took me a long time to own that word, to really feel like I could say that about myself. And I struggle with it even now because, you know, like a couple years ago, I went to Hyman. I wrote an essay about this and I'm like meeting people who's like, oh, I'm eighth generation Appalachian. And I'm like, I'm one. (laughs) (laughs) Now I don't live there. So do I even count? Can I use that word? And I, I mean, I think I can. And I do. But in some ways, I think that, again, like it's taken going away a little bit 
And it's taken being able to read Appalachian writers and it's taken being in conversation with people who are doing incredible work in Appalachia to sort of like be like, wait a minute, there's actually a lot we have in common with each other. And there are these threads that like tie together our books and our writing and our stories that like when I'm writing by myself in isolation, I don't always see. But then when I put my book beside somebody else's, I'm like, oh, this thing is it's right here. A few months ago, I was at the Greenbrier for a reading with Ann Pancake and Catherine Moore and Natalie Seapole, you know, and was talking and she was talking about how place is such a hallmark of Appalachian literature. And it is like the more of it you read when you say place is a character in my writing, I think place is a character in the writing of every Appalachian writer. I don't think you can write about Appalachia without it being a place. You look at Carter Sickles work, you look at Silas House's work, you look at Crystal Wilkinson's work, all of their work. Place is a person, but you, you need to be able to locate yourself in that body of work and in that body of people to understand that. And so in a weird way, I feel like I had to go away to like see where where I fit into that story. It's funny because on paper, you and I aren't that similar. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you just read our background. You figure. <laughs> similar, but my brother and I have these exact conversations that it took me going away to identify as Appalachian, to understand what Appalachia really is, to appreciate mm-hmm. Appalachia. You know, we all have similarities, whether we understand them or not. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I kind of make fun of Pittsburgh a little bit now, because like when I lived in Pittsburgh in the late 90s, people in Pittsburgh were really mean about West Virginia. Like they did not have nice things to say. They made fun of how I talk. They made fun of the fact that I didn't use to be in the Paris of the East. Right. Exactly. The Manhattan of West Virginia, like they <laughs> like to call themselves. Right. So like, it's kind of funny for me now when Pittsburgh's like, we're a part of Appalachia. And I'm like, well, I'm glad you feel that way now. But like, you made me feel kind of crappy about <laughs> where I was from. So like what has changed? Because it wasn't like this 20 years ago. 20 years ago, you were like, we're not Appalachia, we're something else. And now (laughs) you're like, Appalachia is amazing. And I'm like, I agree. But this is an interesting evolution that's happened to this city. I think there is a surge. uh, And I, I don't think it's disconnected from what happened with the 2016 election and what happened with Hillbilly Elegy, which is I think that by and large, people in Appalachia were living their lives And we're not that concerned about what someone else was saying about them until what people were saying about them became so toxic and so misrepresentative that then people were like, this isn't right. And so then you see this huge surge of people asserting identity in really positive and proactive ways to respond to this negative narrative. And so I do think there's this kind of amazing way in which Appalachian identity is getting lifted up and unpacked and people are trying to understand it more. I think that's what your podcast is doing. I think that's what Appalachia is doing. It's like, we can't let other people tell our story. And not to say we haven't been telling our stories, we have been. Somehow this like dominant narrative has gotten established that doesn't match with reality. And so we have to get louder and louder and louder in order to counter it. And that volume has just gone up. And there's so many individual stories that have come out because of that. Maybe not in counter of that, but just just because of it in, in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, I think you never want it to be that like something negative. You don't want it to be that like negative narratives get developed about a place. Like that's not something I think any of us wish for. But I do think organized, intentional response to that negative narrative is pretty freaking amazing. It's yeah, really yeah. powerful to see. At, at this point... I think it's louder. I think the volume of the narrative coming, the counter narrative, I think the volume of the counter narrative is louder than that initial negative narrative that sort of started to get spewed around 2016. I don't know when you wrote it, but Hindu Hill- Hillbilly Elegy is a really good essay <laughs> that you wrote too. I- Yeah, you know, like people are like, we don't need any elegies. And I totally appreciate that. But I actually think Hindu hillbillies are not a like it's a community that I just I don't know how long it'll last. Right. Like, it's a thing I wonder about a lot. So in that sense, the word elegy in that context, I think, is because I do wonder a lot about how long this community will last, especially with the sort of like decline of some of the industries that were the big draws. You know, like a lot of the folks who were there when my parents first got there, like as they age, they're moving to where their children are. And their children aren't in West Virginia anymore, a lot of them. To, to that point, let me ask you, do, uh, it's two questions, I guess. Do you ever go back to West Virginia? And then the other question is, do you still have family in India? And do you go visit 
there. I do go back to West Virginia at least once a year. The pandemic's made it a little bit harder, but I was there in November. I'll be there again in March. I'll be there again in April. Yes. The number of people who I'm going to visit is declining because people are aging and people are passing away and people are moving. But like, it is this kind of weird thing where it almost feels like even if there's nobody, like, I think I'm still going to end up there just because like, there's something that just pulls me back. It's the mountains. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it has yes. its way. <laughs> right. You know, it's like, you can't, you can't go too long before you're like, I got to be back here. Um, exactly. When I flew back in November, it was the first time I've been back since the start of the pandemic. And I was like, how have I gone this long without that feeling of like standing in Lewisburg and you're looking around. Right. And it's just like, you're surrounded on all sides. That, that feeling is you can't replace it and you can't go too long without it. India is more complicated for me. Uh, I haven't been back in almost nine years. Do you have family there? I do. I have a lot of family there. I think the more clear my identity as a queer person has become, the harder it has become to go back because India is not an easy place to be. Uh, and member of the LGBTQ community, uh, not, and again, just like with Appalachia, there are people who are there and they're living their lives and they're living their truth every single day. And also it's not easy. Right. And so, yeah, it's, it's sort of almost become more complicated to go to India than it is to go to Appalachia. So I have not been back in a really long time. Can we get into your writing? Yeah. You said that your book is a collection of essays. I know you've been writing essays over the past several years for a long time now. Why have you decided to put this book out now? And, and how do you go into writing? How do you write? Yeah. I mean, I would be lying if I didn't say that 2016 was a tipping point for me. I do think that seeing that negative narrative and like seeing how invisible the people I knew were in that narrative. And by people I knew, like, I don't mean Indian people. I mean, like my neighbors. Right. I mean, like people who I knew to be like profoundly loving, wonderful human beings just be so disrespected and demeaned in the narrative. It made me really angry and it made me feel like the place that I was from was being really misrepresented. Like a lot of my initial writing was about that. Like it was just like starting to try to be like, this isn't right. You know, like th this doesn't feel right to me. It isn't right. And I can be bad. Or I can figure out what does it look like to tell a different story. And that was like really the genesis of a lot of this. And so it was like starting to write those stories, starting to, like a lot of the beginning stuff was like sketching like neighbors, like sketching those relationships, sketching the dynamics. Like uh, there's a whole essay in the collection called Neighbors, right? Which was about my effort to sort of like explain or try to show like the difference between neighboring in Appalachia and quote, neighboring that we would say is happening in Boston, which isn't neighboring of any meaningful kind. I wanted to show that just like, yeah, there's this like, you know, like I was up here and like people were being so elitist and so like, oh, we're so superior to these people. And I was like, you're full of shit. Like, <laughs> you're absolutely full of shit. Like this, I live here. I know what this is like. And I know what that's like. And I feel like I can actually say something about the difference between the two. So that was definitely like a big part of the impetus. And then I didn't know I had a book. I started to write individual essays. There's a nonprofit in Boston called Grub Street. That's like a writing organization. And so I like started to take classes because I'm a teacher and it is all consuming work. And if you don't make space in your schedule to write, you won't. So I started to take classes and like in every class that I take it'd be like a 12-week class and you'd have to write three essays and then like you know like people would start to be like you need to write more of these or like there's a book in here like people started to say like there's more here like keep unpacking keep unpacking and so it was really over the course of like four years four or five five years of really trying to like unpack this childhood and the way that it like kept reflecting and resonating and what was happening in my adult life that I sort of came to realize like, oh, there's a collection here. This isn't just a one-off essay here and a one-off essay here. Like there's a theme or a thread that ties these together. Is it hard to write so personally nonfiction or these essays? Is it really hard to write about your story? I mean, I imagine some parts of it is. Yeah, uh, I definitely am sleeping less and less as we get closer <laughs> and closer to publication. I think that in particular, just the sort of steps of like, okay, so I'm an Indian woman writing nonfiction. Like there are not a lot of us. Uh, there are like no Appalachian Indian women writing nonfiction. And then just in general, like generationally, 
Like this is not a thing that a lot of people have done. And, and it is hard. It's culturally hard for, I think a lot of my family to understand, like, why, why do I need to do this thing? Why do I need to tell these stories? Why do I need to publish them? It's very difficult for a lot of people to understand. And it means that like by doing it, like I'm making a conscious choice to do something that people don't understand. And that's hard. But I also am a, I'm a teacher. And I know that for my young people, models can be the difference between survival and not survival. Having models can be all the difference in somebody's life. Having somebody who shows you like, this will be okay. It is really freaking hard, but you'll get through it. It's a difference maker for a lot of people. And so I just, I think I feel like a really strong sense of obligation to like put another story into the world that, that creates a model. And I feel like if I have to balance between like the disappointment of some people because they don't want stories told and the potential like way in which having that story in the world could create a positive model for somebody who really needs one, I'm picking the positive model. You know, like I said, I've lived a lot of places, but everywhere I've lived, we always talk about the differences, but I find there's so many more similarities than there are differences, regardless of where we live or you know, even in regards to the challenges or opportunities that, that we may have, there are much more similarities than there are differences. And that's why I think it's important for stories like yours and stories like others to, to be told and to be read and to be out there. And I appreciate what you're doing. And, I, you know, if it can connect with one person to show those similarities, that it's very important. And I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I'm grateful for like all of the amazing Appalachian writers who are doing this every day. I think we just need more. I think the more stories we have and the more stories that are showing like the different ways in which people make meaning of their identity in the world, like the better off we'll all be. If there's one thing that you would want people to take from your writings or from your book, what do you want people to get out of your book, whether it be a young person or even an older person? I think that there's probably two things. I think if you're a young person in Appalachia, I want you to read this book and I want you to know that there's space for your story too. If that can happen, like if high school students in West Virginia start reading this book, I will be the happiest person in the world because I'll be like, you know what? You don't have to be anything like me, but reading this book maybe gives you permission to tell your own story and to know that your story matters and is important and that you can be lots of things. You can be queer and Appalachian. You can be Indian and Appalachian. You can be queer and Indian and Appalachian. Like all those things, they can be held together. You don't have to choose. And I think more broadly, I think the most important thing to me and that the thing that I work the hardest on, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like the book is a love letter. It's a love letter to place. And I want people to feel that love. Like I want them to feel like the kind of love that I have for Appalachia. Like I want, I want them to feel it and I want them to understand why I have it. And I think if I can, if, if that love comes through, I think that's the most powerful counter to the like toxic narrative. Love's the way we get through that thing. Not, I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I, I mean, like radical love, the ability to like see something for what it is and be honest about it and still like hold it with love. Like that's, that's what we have to do. And so that's what I hope people can do. Not see it with rose colored glasses, not pretend like the challenges don't exist, but recognize that like, even with challenges, people are deserving of our love places are deserving of our love that's a great answer do, do you have a little teaser for the listeners do you have a favorite essay in, in the book and, and can you tell your listeners when when exactly it's coming out or the for list? sure my favorite favorite essay is the one you really like too which is be like wilt this is an essay about my first basket that i ever scored in a basketball game and the, that's right granny style and the amazing basketball coach who uh, who convinced me it was okay to shoot granny style if it was going to get the job done that's my favorite essay you know and- what stood out to me I'm, yeah. kind of, I'm kind of kidding here, but the tur- turquoise Charlotte Hornets jacket. Did you have one? <laughs> yeah, my brother did. <laughs> I think everyone had one. Yeah. I think there must have been a sale that we all went to because everyone had one. Yeah, you know, Kentucky and West Virginia, we don't have pro teams. So you got that's keep- right. You're picking Charlotte. And for basketball, you didn't have very many options at all because it was Cleveland or Charlotte. That was it, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of stuck. The book comes out March 1st from West Virginia University Press. You can get it at any bookstore. Very I cool. hope people read it. I'm really excited about it. Definitely. We'll send out a, a reminder around March 1st to uh, go get a copy. I would love that. I wanted to ask you a few West Virginia questions since you sure. have this self-proclaimed love for Appalachia. <laughs> I mean, for Appalachia and West Virginia. So what's your favorite thing to do in West Virginia? 
My favorite thing to do is the thing that we did with, well, there are a couple. Anyone who came to visit, we took them to Blanco to watch the guys blow glass because Blanco is halfway between uh, Cross Lanes and Huntington. So Milton was like a stop for everybody. I love Blanco glass and I grew up watching those guys blow glass all the time. Um, which is like a weird quirk of my growing up, but that's one of my favorite things to do. I would buy all the Blanco in the world if my partner would let me, but she sets limits on how much I'm allowed to get. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I really love to do is I love to go down to Hawk's Nest. It's just such a beautiful place. Hiking in that area is is one of my favorite things to do. Well, that was my next question. So I guess you answered it. Your favorite place, would it be Hawk's Nest? Hawksnest is one of them. I also really love Kanawha State Forest, which is not very far outside of Charleston at all. But that's where we would go. We go waiting in the creek for every birthday. Like that was my favorite way to spend my birthdays was waiting in the creek at Kanawha State Forest. So I love it there. Oh, we had J.Q. Dickinson Saltworks on an episode. They're doing some cool things in the valley there. They are doing some amazing things. I have a whole bunch of their salt up here with me. Yeah, it's great. Another thing I didn't learn about growing up in school is the history of the Kanawha salines and the fact that, right? Slave labor, mine those salines. How did we not learn that growing up? I know. We didn't. I I don't know if you have it back there, but their ramp salt. Oh, it's so good. It is, Yes. (laughs) Yes. They need to sell it in bulk. I like buy these little canisters and I'm like, this is not enough. We need like the big bags. (laughs) I know, right? Okay, uh, this is an important question. So, Biscuit World or Cracker Barrel? Oh, Biscuit World. (laughs) Is Cracker Barrel Barrel unionizing? I don't think so. I saw that today. (laughs) Tutors all the way. There is no question about it. And their unionizing efforts just make it even better. (laughs) So, uh, another question. Do you even like pepperoni rolls? So, you know, I grew up vegetarian, but my friends would open the pepperoni rolls and take out the pepperoni and then give me the bread, which is an adult. I'm like, this is not, this was cheating for sure. This tastes the same. But right? that like oily bread, that, that was delicious. Yeah. So yeah. you're a fan. Yeah. I mean, I'm ashamed to admit it, but yes. <laughs> it's <laughs> definitely sure. like fail, vegetarian fail. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I wanted to ask you a question that we ask all our guests. When I say this word, what is the first thing that comes to mind or, or rolls off the tip of your tongue when I say the word Appalachia? Home. Perfect. Because my next question <laughs> that we ask all our guests is what, where do you call home and why do you call it home and what makes it unique? Home is 5303 Pamela Circle, Cross Lanes, West Virginia, 25313. <laughs> I've not lived there since 2003, but it will always be home. Like it's just when I think about home, that's the place that I see the people who have lived around me, they're home to me. I like everything about my identity formation is like grounded on that street with those people. Nowhere I've lived since has felt like that place. So it's sort of, you know, and it doesn't even exist in the same way anymore. Different people live in that house, different people (laughs) live on that street, but like, it doesn't matter in my head. That's, that's still home. Yeah. That's a perfect answer. I, I, I still call the mountains home, no matter where I've lived or where I will live in, in the future, the mountains will always be home. A hundred percent. Well, Nima, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I think this has been great and I appreciate your time. And like you said, March 1st, definitely people should check out your book. And like I said, we'll send out a reminder. Please do. And if you're in the Charleston area, I'm reading it at Taylor Books on April 19th. So love to see folks there too. Very cool. All right. Thank you so much. All right, Will. Great interview. I was really uh, moved by all the great things that that she said about Appalachia. It's not a place that can ever be duplicated. She grew up in Appalachia and then hasn't lived here for some time now, but it's still near and dear to her heart because of the great things that that go on here the great people that live here so you know just a different perspective but also the same end game that appalachia is great yeah I, yeah I, I really appreciate how she spoke about the people of appalachia and her neighbors how finding a neighbor in Appalachia, you can't find that anywhere else because they're so welcoming, so nurturing, 
and you know her her parents think- were immigrants and and just to to that point of her community being so welcoming to them so inviting you know that's how all appalachian communities should be towards immigrants if you i think you can, you can attest to that as somebody that you know doesn't necessarily live in appalachia anymore you've experienced that yourself uh, from a neighboring standpoint i've always been here so I've always had great neighbors and great people that live close to me and by me and next door to me that are, you know, like family, uh, which is the way it is in Appalachia. But it, it was unique to hear her say that. And I know you can relate to that as well. Yeah, definitely. I can relate to it. I know we spoke about it on here before, but, you know, just to hear her speak about how place is a character in Appalachia, how in her books and, and almost everyone that writes about Appalachia, Appalachia is a character, uh, just place being a character in her books. And I've talked about before moving away and feeling like I lived in a space instead of place and never could find home anywhere else except the mountains. I guess when you're in it, you know, you take it for granted that you can go next door and borrow an egg from the neighbor. I mean, you come to my house, it costs $4, but borrow a chicken. If you're uh, if you're in Appalachia, man, it's uh, you need something from the neighbor. It's no big deal. But I guess I take that for granted. You've lived in a lot of different places or spaces. You know, it's not not as easy as it is here. And she mentioned this, you know, there's just something about the mountains. It has that I like to call it a little bit of magic. It's just different. Um, I also appreciated, you know, how she talked about having a mentor, even if you don't have people that are like you, that look like you, that you can find someone that you can look up to. And you can find that anywhere, and especially in Appalachia. Yeah, I thought that was a great point. You know, made me really think of all the people that have, I guess, breathed life into me uh, over the years and all the coaches that I had along the way and and people in in those roles that, again, in Appalachia, sometimes you take for granted. But that's why I liked her Be Like Wilt uh, essay so much. You know, she talked about Carl Bradford in the in the interview, but also that, that's kind of what the essay was about, of how he was her mentor and how he took her in as her basketball coach. In that essay, she also talked about keeping her Indian heritage while also integrating into her Appalachian identity and community through basketball. That's what she chose to integrate into the Appalachian community was basketball even though her parents were immigrants and they had their own identities their own heritage she still can keep her indian heritage while also being appalachian and i think that's a really good point yeah man great interview i enjoyed it i wanted to ask you about of place tonight if you had anything that came to mind during our interview or or right now anything pops into your head I guess I did think about it a little bit during the interview, but now it has definitely popped into my head. You know, when we lived, we talk about Pineville a lot on here, but when we were younger, at the bottom of the hill, they were they were much older than you. They were older than me, but the Cabways lived at the bottom of the hill. This, yeah. uh, their parents were immigrants, but their dad came to work at the hospital. He was an ER doctor at the hospital. He was recruited to work at the hospital there in Pineville. And they lived at the bottom of the hill. And because we lived at the top of the hill, you know, that's walking distance. But I would always go play basketball with the Cabways at the bottom of the hill at their house. You know, I was introduced into their house, knew their parents a little bit. Like I said, they were much older than me. You know, they loved Magic Johnson. I remember watching the Celtics and the Lakers with them back in the day when Bird and Magic played. And I just remember, you know, being a kid, I didn't understand what immigrants were. Their parents were immigrants, but I didn't understand the time because I was so young about kind of what Nima was saying of how she had to find her own identity in Appalachia. And maybe, you know, because the Cabways, they had their own heritage. They had to find their own identity. I don't know if it was through basketball or through what, but Cabways were definitely welcomed in Pineville. They were a big part of the community. June June, Barry and Ben Cabway. I know that, like I said, they were much older than me, really good friends with my sister, older sister, our older sister. But I just wanted to mention that, like, you know, at a a time when 
I was so young that I didn't know what immigrants were. I didn't know they had a hard time trying to fit in. I, I don't really think they did. You know, I just wanted to just mention that in Of Place and how Appalachian communities can be welcoming to immigrants and make them part of the community. And it not only helps that family, but it helps the Appalachian community as well to become more diverse, to become more vibrant, to become more part of this melting pot that Appalachia has always been. Well said, man. Hadn't thought about the Cowboys in a long time, but obviously they were a lot older than me. Uh, and I didn't get to spend as much time down there as you did. But to me, they were the Cowboys. They were just, you know, just another great right. family. Yeah. <laughs> Never even thought about it from that perspective. But, you know, it's a great point. That's it, man. Go Joe. Go Joe. Looking forward to it. I guess I can end it like I usually do. Till next time. Peace. getting thin now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains again